Our text today is from 2 Peter 3. It's the New Testament lesson. We'll be focusing on verses 8 through 14. Now, perhaps surprisingly, perhaps surprisingly, uh, the text is a traditional New Testament reading, right? Taking from the church's system of readings, from the lectionary, right, for this season. Because, I say surprising, because at first blush, you heard the text read, right? At first blush, it's about as far from standard, popular sentiments of this season as one could get. Hopefully, by now here, it's clear why the church has historically viewed these texts, of all texts, these texts, as Advent texts. In short, the reason is, the first coming is the second coming in advance. The first coming sets the second coming in motion. There's lots of ways of trying to articulate this, but the church has always instinctively understood it. The two comings are locked together. They cannot be pulled apart. Cyril of Jerusalem was a famous 4th century bishop, left us a whole series of catechetical lectures. He says this, We preach not one advent only of Christ, but a second also, far more glorious than the former. For the former gave a view of his patience, but the latter brings with it the crown of a divine kingdom. His descents are twofold. One, the unobserved, like rain on a fleece, and a second, his open coming, which is to be. In his former advent, he was wrapped in swaddling cloths in a manger. In his second, he covers himself with light as with a garment. In his first coming, he endured the cross, despising the shame. In his second, he comes attended by a host of angels receiving glory. We rest not upon his first advent only, but also look for his second. And as at his first coming we said, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So we will repeat that same at his second coming. That when the angels appear, we go out to meet our master, we will then worship him, saying, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And he concludes, Our Lord Jesus Christ will therefore come from heaven. He will come at the end of the world in glory at the last day, for there will be an end to this world, and the created world will be made anew. That's Cyril. He gets this fundamental point. The resurrection of Jesus is the organic beginning of the resurrection of the dead. The supper is the foretaste of the coming wedding supper. Everything in the church's life points us in this direction. There is an organic, natural connection, a deep and profound one, between the appearance of Jesus Christ and the end, the order of the resurrection, which is why Karl Barth famously said, Advent is the only season the church is ever in. And when a person grasps this, even a little bit, if we can just get, the, get a piece of it, it's absolutely jarring and disruptive. And if it doesn't create a certain kind of tension, then texts like the one we just heard from 2 Peter 3, they're not being heard properly. The great 
uh, British theologian John Webster, referring to our text from 2 Peter 3, says this. Advent involves being jolted. I almost titled the sermon, Jolted. Like, I want to jolt you today. Advent involves being jolted into, Webster says, a heightened sense of the reality of our situation before God. It should, he says, produce a kind of simplification. A simplification in which what's important and what's peripheral becomes plain to us. If you heard that text from 2 Peter 3 read, it will sort your priorities out real fast. Advent brings this simplification. All of our social and political upheaval is relativized and shrinks down in the light of the jolt of the Advent declaration that the day of God is at hand. Advent, Webster says, purges our spirits because it's a stark, he says, and devastatingly simple reminder that the day of God is at hand. So we'll look at this text from 2 Peter under three headings. They're there on the outline, the delay, the day, the discipline. So there's a delay, right? Just prior to the text, I'm focusing on verse 8, but in the first seven verses, we hear that these scoffers are coming, and they come in the last days, the period of time in which the church presently is. What do they do? What do the scoffers say? Well, they call into question, they're mocking the words of the prophets concerning the day of God. They say, where is this coming you're talking about? Where is the coming he promised? Everything, they say, goes on as it has been since the beginning of the creation. That's the taunt. So we know the promise is about the whole creation coming to an end. Because the taunt is, everything's going on just the way it's gone on from the beginning of time. Now, I mean, when things get delayed, we really do lose focus on them, don't we? And if an event's delayed for a long time, like the coming of Christ, the weight can produce scoffing and ridicule, right? As it does here in our text. People begin to doubt that the delayed event will ever materialize. These are the scoffers that the church will and does face in these last days. We still face this taunt, this exact taunt, this exact scoffing from the unbelieving world is still there. Where is the promise of his coming? Everything just goes on in a normal, uniform pattern, the way it has always done. And Peter, again, this is just before our text, he reminds us that even as the flood destroyed the world that then was, he calls it, So the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. This is something the scoffers forget, he says. They are kept, the present heavens and earth are, for the day of judgment. Not a day of judgment, the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Not your destruction. I want to be clear about this. Because you are in Jesus Christ. It's this day 
that the gospel highlights for us. We need the gospel because of this coming day, and it's the gospel that brings you through this day. This, Peter says, the scoffers deliberately forget. What do they forget? They forget that the whole world has already been destroyed once in a global cataclysm, in a flood. But in the face of the scoffing, what to make of the delays? Well, Peter tells us in verse 8, we shouldn't forget. He cites Psalm 90. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. This is not about math. right? The point here is this. God transcends time. He doesn't have the same kind of relationship to time that we do. For he is the creator. And time is a creature. Very important to understand that. Time's a creature. It will end like all creaturely things will end. A short duration, Peter says, a day is like a long duration, like a thousand years. And vice versa, a long duration is just like a short duration. How can this be? Why is this? Well, it's because God transcends duration. There's no succession of moments in God's being. He doesn't change. He doesn't age. He has no personal past or future. He lives in the eternal now. For him, all is present. This is what we mean when we call him the eternal God, the one who inhabits eternity. And so Peter's having to remind his his hearers a little bit about the, the classical doctrine of God. And thus, he says, he's not slow. God is not slow in keeping his promises. As some understand slowness, he says. Right. Slowness as a category, Peter is saying, does not apply to God. Even if it appears to us that he's tarrying about something. The time can seem long to us, Calvin says, because we count up days and hours and minutes like we have to live in this linear succession. But he says, when the eternity of the kingdom of God meets us, Many ages will vanish away like a moment in time. Boom! In the epiphany, in the blazing splendor, in the fire of the being of God and his light, boom! Everything vanishes. Ages vanish away. They look like nothing, like smoke. And so the second coming is always near. It's always at hand. The judge is always at the door. The Lord is always near. He is never slow. Because he doesn't measure time in our fashion. And because, as I've repeatedly said, ad nauseum, I'm sure, the end has already appeared in Jesus Christ. Thus, the end is always near. That's the jolt. The end of all things has appeared in Jesus Christ. If we excise this, You can go through the whole Advent season. You can go through decades of Advent with no jolt. (laughs) Nate Gill sent me a poem this week that's relevant here. It's by Christina Rossetti, who I believe wrote the lyrics to In the Bleak Midwinter as well. It's called Sunday Before Advent. 
Here's the poem. It's short. The end of all things is at hand. First of all, that's a person who gets the the, the purpose of Advent. (laughs) When your Advent poem starts with that line, you've been jolted. Here's the poem titled Sunday Before Advent. The end of all things is at hand. We all stand in the balance trembling as we stand. Or if not trembling, tottering to a fall. The end of all things is at hand. O hearts of men, covet the unending land. O hearts of men, covet the musical sweet, never-ending waters of that strand. While earth shows poor, a slippery rolling ball, and hell looms vast, a gulf unplumbed, unspanned, and heaven flings wide its gates to great and small, the end of all things is at hand. People that are jolted, they stand trembling, as she says in the poem. Now, back to Second Peter. The end of all things of at hand is at hand, of course, is what Peter says in his first epistle. In Second Peter here, he adds something else about the timing. He says, God is not slow, but instead he's patient. Right? The delay, the longness that we experience. God doesn't experience it, but that we experience, shows God's patience. Peter says he's not wanting any to perish. He wants all of his people to come to repentance. So the delay, like it was in the day of Noah, is a sign of divine forbearance. It's the time of salvation. It's the time for the gospel to be proclaimed and for all the sheep, the whole elect fold of God to be gathered in. Every last sheep that God has determined to be saved must be saved so he delays the day. So that's the delay. Now let's look at the day itself. This is the heart of the text, 2 Peter 3. And here... There is an overwhelming, devastating, even shocking vision. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Jesus uses this language. Paul uses this language. Meaning the day will be sudden. It will be unexpected. It will be without warning for scoffers. Let it not be without warning for us. Because it will be without warning for unjolted. Christians. In this coming day, Peter says, the heavens, by which he means the atmospheric heavens, will pass away and disappear with a roar. The same loudness that's always associated with our Lord's parousia, his coming, his appearing. It's a really simple argument. What water did in the global flood, fire will do in this global judgment. Right? You know that old song, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water but fire next time. It's an old blues song. God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water but fire next time. The very elements of the universe, Peter says, probably a reference to the heavenly bodies, will be destroyed by fire. They will melt in the heat, verse 12 says. And the earth, and now notice this, and everything done in it. 
All the works that are upon it in some translations. What will happen to the earth? It will be laid bare, found out, exposed to the fire of the divine coming. Right? This conflagration, this cosmic fire, look, just as an aside, maybe the fire is metaphorical. But if it's metaphorical and not literal, it's still a metaphor of coming cosmic cataclysmic judgment. This fire is mentioned here, it's mentioned again in verse 12 for emphasis, and it's always, or regularly perhaps, associated with the day of judgment in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, you saw it in the Isaiah 66 reading, if you read that text, there's a coming of the Lord with fire that's associated with the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. Fire, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, right? The fire of the day will test every man's work. 2 Thessalonians 1, the Lord Jesus appears from heaven in a flame of fire. Right? We could go on and on and on. This is a fundamental set of imagery for the great coming day. God himself, when he appears, is a consuming fire. That's all this text is saying. On the day of God will be a day of fire because God is the God of consuming fire. Now, we ought to admit this. This is a bit more than we can take in. Our souls are trapped in our own succession of fleeting moments. We're absorbed in the immediate And we struggle mightily to assimilate this scene. Everything, nothing is exempt. The heavens, the elements, the earth, everything done in the earth, everything that we thought was solid and firm and enduring disappears, is destroyed, is laid bare, and is burned. Merry Christmas. (laughs) It's offensive to us. We don't like it. We have ways of evading it, psychological ways of evading it, and other ways of evading it. I mean, it doesn't seem to respect human culture. It doesn't seem to respect human history. Why doesn't Peter unpack a philosophy of history for his churches? It doesn't even seem to respect the very created order itself. It sounds like an apocalyptic movie. It sounds, frankly, like science fiction. And you would certainly be sneered at in elite circles for holding to this kind of awful, primitive, barbaric, cosmic destruction. It's an appalling, overwhelming scene. And it's also a ferocious, frontal assault on our inability to separate the enduring, invisible things from the temporal, visible things. 2 Corinthians 4. The things of chief importance from the superfluous things. It's a text which is coming after our refusal to be jolted. The things that we are sure are ultimate things. Ultimate things. Things of great weight and importance. Like, well, how about this? How about the present heavens and earth on which we stand? Turn out to be penultimate things. Good things, to be sure, 
but definitely not ultimate things. So the text is here to bring some clarity to our disordered sense of permanence and importance. But the cosmos will, Peter says, on the other side of this fire, be renewed and restored. It's a lot like our bodies. Your body's going to disintegrate and be reconstituted at the resurrection. The cosmos is going to disintegrate and be reconstituted. We are, notice the text says this three times. We are, it depends if you're reading an NIV or an ESV here, but we are looking forward. That's the NIV. The ESV usually says something like waiting here. We are looking forward, verse 13 says, to a new heavens and a new earth. We're looking to this place, this realm predicted in the prophets, where injustice and violence are banished, where righteousness and peace reign. And if we ask ourselves, when will the new heavens and the new earth appear? Well, we have to let the New Testament interpret the old. We have to let the apostles interpret the prophets. Right? We see here the new heavens and new earth appear on the other side of this fire, on the other side of the day of God, on the other side of the second coming. Peter thinks there are three Historical periods, the world that then was, which was destroyed by water, the world that now is, which will be destroyed by fire, and then the new heavens and the new earth for which he and we are looking. Peter does not think he's in the new heavens and the new earth. He's looking for it. This is true, by the way, in Revelation 21, where the new heavens and the new earth appear after the final judgment. And John uses language like this. He says, the first heavens and earth pass away. The old creation is destroyed. The new emerges. This scene happens when Jesus comes on the day of God. This is the universal teaching of the Christian church. Romans 8 teaches the same thing about the present creation and its order. What does it say? It says this present creation is subject to futility. It is groaning. And it's awaiting the coming day of God, the redemption of our bodies. So, we naturally resist the vision of this day. Because it requires taking seriously that human life, all of it. Right? Now, of course, we can't avoid this, right? We, we have to plan our lives. We have to go to work. <laughs> We study for our careers. These are all noble things. We have to plan some kind of a future. We have to act as if our life's going to stretch out in front of us for a while. That's all good and natural. But this text requires us to remember the day of God. It requires a kind of openness, right, that takes seriously the fact that human life in its fullness, in every land, in every culture, can and shall be suddenly Broken off, dissolved, and shattered, laid bare, and ended, period. But we just tend to default to a position that extends our own existence out ad infinitum. But we tend to think of ourselves like Mount Rushmore, like permanent features of the landscape. It's too daunting to do something else. You can't hold this scene like this in front of your consciousness. Thinking about it paralyzes us. It immobilizes people. 
And yet the text is not to do that to us. That's not why Peter writes it. Notice this about our orientation to this day. Verse 12. As you look forward to the day of God. Or as you're waiting for. Same idea. As you're waiting for or looking forward to it. Verse 13. We are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth. Verse 14. Since you are looking forward to these things. Three times in three verses. This great day and the new creation on the other side of it, this is the joy. It is the longing. It is the hope. It is the thing, the thing. There's not some other thing. This is the thing. This is the blessed hope of the church. The church doesn't have two hopes. It has this hope. Right? It's, it's, in, it's in our creeds. What's the last line of, that every Christian church in the world from the second or third century on has said in the creed? We Look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. This is basic to Christian existence. Not only this, Peter says in verse 12, we look forward to the day of God and we seek to speed or hasten its coming. We pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We pray thy kingdom come. We preach the gospel which delivers us from the wrath of this day. We administer the supper, which is a foretaste of this day. All of the church's worship and repenting and confessing, they all serve to hasten this day. And no other day. So the text puts before us this question. Are we looking for and hastening this day? I mean, if you ask us, we might say yes. But if you don't ask us and just listen to what's important to us as we talk, then it's clear the answer is no. We can go years without even discussing this day. And yet this jolt is basic. We are summoned here to be ready, to be waiting, to be looking, and even if possible, precipitating, hastening this day. Finally, then, the discipline, and here I mean, what does this mean? Right, this is simple. What does this text want us to do? What does this text want us to do? Verse 11 says, since everything, again, everything will be destroyed in this way. Notice the question. I'm struck by this. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? It's Francis Schaeffer's famous question, right, from about a generation ago. How shall we then live? But do you know what's missing, even from Schaefer's question? This context. Listen to what Peter says again. Since everything is to be destroyed by fire, how shall we then live? Like, when is the last time we heard anyone ask a question about Christian living and Christian ethics and Christian practice with that preface? Like prefaced with, since everything is to be destroyed by fire, let's now talk about Christian ethics. That literally never happens. And that preface changes the kind of answer one gives. We are not asking general questions, timeless questions about what the Christian view of X is, or how a Christian should live in such and such a situation. 
All our questions about the Christian life are asked in the towering shadow of this fiery inferno, this cosmic conflagration and renewal of all things. Since everything is going to be vaporized by fire, what kind of people ought we to be? That's a different kind of question, isn't it? Sounds different. The question itself is already singed with the smoke of the day. What's the answer to the question? Well, it may not satisfy us. It might not seem very specific. Because Peter doesn't outline any grand strategy or agenda. He doesn't have any blueprint for social transformation. Here's what he says. We are to live holy and godly lives. Holiness and godliness, that's it. It's a kind of ethic sandwich. And the bread on the sandwich is the eschaton, the day of God. Here's the whole verse. This is what I mean. Since everything is to be destroyed in this way, there's the eschaton, the day of God. Be people who live holy and godly lives. There's the ethics. As you look forward to the day of God, there's the eschaton. Eschaton, ethics, eschaton. That's the form of the text. That should be the form of our thinking. I pick up book after book by Christians. Christian books on Christendom, Christian nationalism, Christian politics, Christian this, Christian that. Not one of them is framing their ethical questions this way. You can tell by the third paragraph. You're in some shadowy, sub-eschatological, historical lowland that is not singed by the fire of this day. This is the form of Christian thinking. Even Christian holiness smells wrong when it has not been rocked or gripped or shaken by this day. This is what we mean. This is what the church has always meant when it says the people of God are an eschatological people, a people filled with the Spirit, a people of the age to come. Look at verse 14. Since we're looking forward to this day, make every effort to be found spotless. Blameless and at peace. Right? Spotless, blameless, and at peace. The creation, he says, is going to be found out. He uses that language. We are to be found in Christ. Right? The creation is going to be found out. You want to be found in Jesus Christ. Again, this day is why we need the gospel. This day is why we preach the gospel. And the gospel is your security and your refuge against this day. It's one thing to be jolted. We should be jolted. But we should not be paralyzed, and we should not be scared by this text. Peter's not writing to scare his audience. He does not think his Christian audience is not surviving this day. Right? Paul tells the Philippians that everything, even his human achievements, even his religious achievements, everything he says is dung except being found in Christ. Right? That means there's a coming examination, and you need to be found in him. And you have a righteousness then, which is not your own. This is a text which, you know, you can't respond to this text by pulling up your bootstraps or seeking to improve your righteousness. Right? This fire is not going to 
tolerate that. You, you respond to this text by realizing, I need to be found in Jesus, rest in Jesus, trust in Jesus, having a righteousness that is not my own, but comes from God through faith. Christ's own righteousness, the righteousness that will stand and withstand this day. The day does not, and it should not, paralyze us. This day is for Peter. Now get this, it's the unique context, the unique stimulus, which inspires Christian purity and godliness and peace. In other words, the Christian life works, I say this a lot here, but this is a text where you see it openly. It works from the future back into the present. This is the text which stimulates sanctity, drives us to the cross of Christ. If this day were not out there, who would need the gospel? Right, this is why Paul says, you turn to God in Jesus Christ who delivers us from the wrath which is to come. Faith illumines this day. Hope yearns for this day. Charity carries us to this day and unites us to this day because the day is nothing more than the revealing of Jesus. That's it. Jesus whom we love. Jesus whose face we desire to see. Jesus whose appearing, Peter tells us in his first epistle, is our total hope. Fix your hope completely. Peter says in his first epistle, on the appearance of Jesus Christ. Let me conclude. There's perhaps not a single modern Christian who would include this text among the Advent readings. It seems like a mismatch, doesn't it? But it's not. Here, let me try and do the jolt one more time. The whole history of the church, going back at least to the third century, if not earlier, when they, when they started celebrating Advent and they put together a system of readings for Advent, it is not just a series of lessons and carols and incarnation of Jesus songs. The, the, the lectionary is front-loaded up, up front with an avalanche of these texts about the second coming. So think about this. The church year does not end with the eschaton. It starts with the eschaton. It's eschaton, 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 all four weeks of Advent. It's we look back to the first coming, we yearn for the second. Right? Any conception of the eschaton is, well, that's out there. We have to deal with right now. Right now is that. That's the jolt. That's why if you're an attentive listener and you come in here on the first or second or third Sunday of Advent, you're going to think, what are all these texts about the second coming of Jesus doing in this Christmas service? The New Testament lesson from Luke's gospel has the same thing, right? John is baptizing, and, he's, and Jesus hasn't even started his public ministry yet. And John says he's already got his winnowing fork in his hand, and he's ready to gather the wheat into his bar- barn and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and a purifying, refining fire to fit you to enter into the glory of this day. Heaven and earth will pass away. Jesus said that. Peter says it here. But this word of the Lord will endure forever, and it will endure forever in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the sort of vision we are to have 
And this is the sort of people we are to be. This is the jolt of Advent. Amen.